Well, hello there, and welcome back to another episode of my weekly show on Father Roderick Podcasting and streaming on YouTube from the heart of the Netherlands, the beautiful city of Amersfoort, the Netherlands, where the sun is shining outside. But I'm right here inside the studios behind the microphone to give you, well, a little bit of distraction from your day-to-day life. This episode is brought to you, like all my episodes and all everything I do basically on social media, thanks to my patrons. Uh, over at patreon.com slash fatherroderick, there is a small community that I invite you to join by becoming a monthly supporter of my work. And you can give basically whatever you can miss. If this show gives you value, uh, helps you, uh, entertains you, then uh, you could do something back for the community. It's not for me, but it is enables me to help to make more of this content and to keep it advertisement-free because I don't want to bother you with advertisements for mattresses or insurances or all that stuff. You know what's going on? This is what's happening in your world. They said Catholics rule. We got Boston, South America, the good part of Ireland, and we're making serious inroads in Mozambique, baby. You've taken your first step into a larger world. So these are the biz busiest weeks of the year. <laughs> There'll be holiday working and even more working until I am dead. <laughs> That's basically these last few weeks leading up to Christmas. And yes, it's just around the corner. We're like five weeks away from Christmas. It's crazy are the busiest uh, of the year for me in terms of production, getting ready, because it's both uh, extremely busy in the parishes, as you can imagine, with Advent and all the celebrations, but also uh, in my television work, because, well, we're right in the middle of preparing the next season of TV shows. Uh, We are working really hard on uh, expanding the plans for 2024, our Dutch channel, and then, of course, I've got plenty of things to do in the YouTube sphere in the podcast for the podcasts. Uh, we're working hard on the new uh, plan for the for the patrons to give involve you more and also give you more in in return as a thank you for your support. So, a lot of work. And what I try to do, and that's why I'm working so hard these days, is to clear the way for Christmas. The last uh, year, right before Christmas. I've just been working day and night. Uh, it was a, an extremely busy uh, um, production time. And I, I work right until, I think I've, I've been working like all day, the 24th of December, until the moment mass started. Uh, I think I was even filming, I don't know, like an hour before I had to go to mass. Uh, I don't want that to happen anymore. And then I also worked throughout the the holiday, the the, the Christmas holiday this year. I want to make sure that... Uh, you know, ideally two weeks before Christmas, I'm done with the bulk of the work. That means that now I have to work in advance quite a bit so that after Christmas I can really take two weeks off, maybe even, you know, go out of the country. But but anyway, just to rest and take a break because, well, I've, I've noticed at the beginning of this year what happens if you don't take a break. It is, uh, it's, it, this, this kind of creative work is so exhausting and even creatively, it's important to sometimes just slow down, step away from everything, and come back with renewed energy. So uh, that's what I'm planning to do. Of course, whether that will work or not, you'll probably hear it in one of these shows. And uh, I talk a bit, little bit more about the specifics in my other show that you can find over at Tridio.com, which is called The Walk. And uh, that one is not on YouTube, by the way. This one is, and I always uh, record this show in front of a live audience, which is a lot of fun. So we've got people from the Netherlands, from the United States, from France, from Germany right now in the chat. Uh, that's that's the fun part of, of streaming in conjunction with recording the audio for the for the podcast feed. Um, there is people react and ask questions, etc. For the patrons, by the way, I always record like a, an after show, a, a special it's a special podcast feed. We're also, by the way, working on a solution for those of you that are donating but not through Patreon. Um, Behind the scenes, we're working really hard on implementing Salesforce, which is a CRM, so a customer relations management software, um, because we have so many different venues that people use to support us and to also um, participate in, in, in our mission and in what we do, that we need to have more powerful software to uh, to make sure that 
we keep every that we keep track track of everyone. And so Inga upstairs is working really hard on master trying to master uh, Salesforce because it's a software that we haven't used uh, until now. Um, but it's going to be once it's installed and once it's in place, uh, I think it's going to allow us for much much better communication with uh, with with the audiences with you. Um, one of the things that I'm still working really hard on is both filming for next for actually for Christmas. I tomorrow I have to go really early to the south of the country film um, uh, a Christmas episode there with among other people the local bishop. So that's going to be fun, but also exhausting. And I'm working hard still on editing. I'm editing uh, the the second part of my Ireland documentary. Uh, the first one airs today, this afternoon. Um, and the other one will air in two weeks from now. But that is always a ton of work. Even more work this time because I have uh, filmed a lot of the footage while on vacation with my new phone without really realizing that I would turn this into a television show. So I almost don't speak to the camera in Dutch. I do speak a lot to the camera in English. That's good for you because that will allow me to make an English version, like a recut of the footage, which I think will work a lot better. But I have to write this long, long, long voiceover and it's like writing a book, you know. It just takes so much more time than just chatting. Um, but anyway, it's, it's a lot of fun to be able to, to share... Uh, the, the, everything that I experienced in Ireland because the views are amazing, the, 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 the land is amazing, the history is fantastic and being able to, to share that with a wide audience uh, via, via television and later on hopefully also via YouTube, that's a lot of, uh, that's, a, that's very gratifying work. Um, in, that, in that same context, I've been uh, planning ahead for 2020 and I was looking to, so I got to produce 15 episodes um, for the first half of the, of the next year. And I always love to do travel shows. However, knowing how busy I am, I can't just always be on a plane or, or in a train and, uh, or in a car traveling the world. But I did do a lot of travel in the past. And uh, so I proposed two episodes about the time that I spent in Australia and New Zealand. So I've been going back through that footage in Australia. I went to Sydney, to Melbourne, uh, Adelaide, went to the Blue Mountains, um, did a lot of interviews as well, and never, ever posted that stuff. Not even on YouTube. It's crazy. It's, and it's, it's good material. It's a little bit old. I mean, it's from 2013. So in the meantime, I've gotten a bit grayer and everything. Although most of my face, I think for people that don't see me every day, they probably won't even notice that it's a little bit older material. But the interviews are still, you know, in, in terms of content, very good. So I think with a voiceover, I can probably work around it and kind of update it with, uh, uh, you know, the situation in Australia right now. Um, but a lot of I, I I was just checking, you know, is this still there? Are these people still active there? Well, well, most of it still holds up pretty well. And then New Zealand is even more timeless because New Zealand is basically a road movie that I filmed there, traveling over the southern island uh, to the places where they filmed The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings and... It is filmed, unfortunately, with my old camera, so I'm much more critical now. <laughs> but then I've I've way more experience. I've six years of extra experience in filming, so I'm dying to go back there and and redo this this these all these travels properly. But in the meantime, it's still fun to reuse. I I the, I was there, I think, in springtime, and so the weather is fantastic. Uh, the everything is just gorgeous. Plus. It was my first time on the Southern Island. So you see my excitement and the, just the, the... If you've seen one of my trailer reaction videos, it's basically that for five days. I like, I'm like, oh my gosh, oh, they filmed this here. Oh, this is amazing. I recognize this place. I recognize those mountains. <laughs> it's just like totally giddy. And, and so it's great footage. And uh, what I'm going to do is also do the same... Now that I know that it works to do, to, you know use existing footage and write a voiceover and let that be the lead, I think I can do this with uh, the Australian and New Zealand material as well. And again, it's good for you as well, because that will be the preparation for like an international version of that same story, which can be even bigger because also there, I did most of the talking in English and my Dutch audience is kind of like, I, I don't think I can talk English to my Dutch audience, they wouldn't understand. But 
it, it, it gives me a reason to, you know, uh, add even that material back into the, into the edit. Uh, but the bulk of the work will already have been done uh, for, for, the, for the TV episode. So that's a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it. It is, it's just, this is the kind of work that gives me energy. It doesn't cost me energy. Sometimes you do work where it's like, ugh, got to do that again. And, you know, always working for other people's expectations. And I'm more and more learning to stand firm and to say, well, this is what I do. This is my story. This, this is what I like to do. This is what I like to share. And if you want something else, then go elsewhere. <laughs> and it's hard to for a people pleaser like me to do that and to, to just make your mark and say, well, this is my strength and this is my story. And this is what I'm going to do. But I'm learning to be more and more firm in that. I have, like, just before I started this recording, I got this idea. I was talking with my editor, and and, and we were uh, exchanging ideas. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, I know what, I, what I'm going to propose. I have this vision of what I want to do on television. It's different from what I do right now. But at the same time, it's, in the same, it's kind of a continuation of the things that I've been experimenting with. Um, but I want to go full force on this in the second half of the year. So that's what I'm going to pitch next week. That is if I survive this week. <laughs> I'm starting to get a little bit of pain. Like uh, my, my throat is aching. I hope I don't get sick. We'll see. Anyway, sick or not, time goes on and I need to work. So uh, hopefully I'll, I'll survive until, until Christmas. Um, by the way, one of the things I'm looking forward to is building the uh, Harry Potter advent calendar uh, that one of my listeners sent me thank you so much i really appreciate it um but so far you've only seen the outside of the box but i want to get building and share that on on youtube always fun to build lego how do you not like movies they're predictable like the guy gets the girl and that kid sees dead people and darth vader is luke's father not liking movies is like not liking puppies they're fine i just get bored and never make it to the end you know, you need a movie education. You need a movication. Now I'm going to give it to you. So, movies and TV shows. Well, as you can imagine, I've just like most of you, I've watched a lot of Disney Plus, and I'm so sorry again. I apologize for all of you that are still waiting for Disney Plus. Good things come to those who have to wait. Trust me, it's really, really good, and I'm really enjoying it. Um,. By the way, there's a question in the chat whether the sales force that I was talking about, if we get that uh, with the, uh, uh, what is it, um, the, the donation uh, principle that they have. Yes, it is. Uh, we, we are a nonprofit organization, so we basically get to use sales, most of Salesforce for free, and then we have to buy these extra modules or rent them for integration with Patreon, that sense. Anyway, so Disney Plus, one thing that I've been watching and is mesmerizing television is the Imagineering story. This is basically the story of how Disney built up its empire and became the Disney that we now all know. And it shows you these early years where, well, it's mostly about the building, the first episode is about the building of Disneyland. And then the first steps into envisioning an even bigger version of Disneyland, which originally was supposed to be like a living, breathing city. Walt really wanted to build the city of the future and then... Ultimately, after his death, they kind of toned it down and it became just basically a bigger version of the theme park uh, that, that, that is in Anaheim. Um, but what makes this, this documentary so fascinating is that the filmmaker, this is a, a female film, filmmaker, uh, had already experienced in uh, making documentaries, it got access to all the archives uh, and all the material sh uh, shot in, well, from the early 30s uh, of the previous century up until today. And to go into that archival material and and rework it, update it, resample it, and and tell that story. And a lot of what you see has never been shown before. I mean, I've I've watched a lot of YouTube documentaries about, about Disney. I'm always I love these stories of how a business came about, how uh, people have built up. I mean, I love reading the biography of. Uh, 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 Steve Jobs, um, uh, the, uh, Microsoft, all that stuff. Um, just recently I read the book about the making of The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit uh, from Peter Jackson's perspective. And I, there's so much you can learn from these visionary people that, that have built up something that is now something we share and love over the, over the world. And, but there's always so much 
trial and error and lessons learned in those personal stories and 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 I can I always apply it to my own situation. I'm like, oh wow, and it encourages me when you see. Walt Disney building, uh, Disney World especially, you see how they, he bought just secretly uh, just entire swamps in in, uh, in Florida. And the first the first phase of construction, you see these, these early buildings. You see like the railway station, uh, Main Street, the castle, but it's built in the middle of nowhere. The entire, it's like almost like they're building it on another planet. It's so remote, so it's all just completely, you know, wasteland. And if you see what it has become now, it takes a vision, it takes this dream where you can already see what what the goal is going to be to keep to keep on building. Because if when you see what where it started, it's like I cannot imagine that this ever becoming Disney World, but it did. And that to me is a is a is a great stimulus for what I'm working at. It's like always dare to dream bigger than just what you're doing right now. Never stay in your safe zone. Always step out of that safe zone. Try something new and dare to also say goodbye to stuff that you did in the past. Like the one of the biggest changes in my own personal life as a media producer was to step away from SQPN, where which was mostly focused on podcasting and on making all these series about popular culture and bridging the gap between popular culture and faith. And I've been doing that for, for more than 10 years. Loved it. Uh, learned a lot. But at a certain moment, I felt that my aspirations went into more, more and more in the direction of video, uh, documentaries, uh, creating, challenging myself to try something new. And I knew that, at, 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 you know, in order to do that well, you need an organization and you need focus. And so it means because that podcasting formula still works and SQPN is thriving, but I had to step away from it in order to be able to focus on something new. And I'm so glad that I did because now, what is it, two years later, look how far I've come. And, and I'm still in the process of, of getting to the next level. And it's ongoing. That's what, I, what you see in this Imagineering story. You see that Walt Disney, once he built Disneyland, he's like, let's build Disney World. He just kept pushing everyone with this creative vision. And once he died... There was this whole time where they had to relearn how to dream big like Walt Disney did. So the second episode is called What Would Walt Disney Do? And it's, it's all about this one person transmitting basically his framework, his mindset, his dreams to an entire organization, which is for me as a kind of the the leader of this 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 platform that I'm building now is also the big challenge is don't stay alone in what you do, but try to get the entire organization to carry the mission and to be able to do something that you can do yourself, but still in that same line of vision. That's what, what happened with Disney World. And um, this is also, uh, there's another reason why this documentary is so fascinating. It's because it is a good lesson in when it comes to fil film preservation. The director tells us how she, when she went into the cold storage, because all these you know, all the, it's all cell, cell, celluloid. Uh, so these first 20, 30 years, everything was filmed on real film. And uh, in many cases, what they discovered was still in, in negative. So they had to resample that and, and improve. But it was because it's on film, they were able to upscale it to HD very easily. Uh, and it still, it looks pristine. There are uh, moments in these, especially early footage of Disney World, where... This could have been filmed just a couple of years ago. That's how good it looks. And of course, it's been kind of uh, polished and, and uh, digitally uh, denoised and whatnot. But it's, it's really amazing. And then they slowly get into the, the, the time frame where they switched from film to video. And that's where the horror begins. And she describes how difficult it, it was to take those videotapes that were often also very badly preserved. And uh, videotapes degrade over time. You know that if you have some old VHS tapes lying around. Ideally, you should go and rewatch them or at least rewind them a number of times per year so that the uh, magnetic material doesn't, doesn't lose its... Um, uh, its charge because if it does you start to really lose the image quality and at one point it will become unwatchable plus of course it's on this very flimsy tape which can also start to decompose and break and whatnot so preservation of video material from that area era uh, 
was always super difficult. Of course, the, the, those early video cameras have a very low resolution. You've got all these, you know, lines and, and uh, it was all interlaced. So um, brushing that material up to make it watchable for the next couple of documentaries apparently was one of their major challenges. And it's only now that with the high-resolution cameras, they're able, again, to film digitally um, not even on the same level as film. It's not by accident that the new Star Wars movies are filmed again on real film. They, they refuse to use digital cameras because they, they know that if you use film, you can always go back and resample it at a higher resolution. There's much more longevity of film than of digital formats. And that is something that I can totally relate to. I mentioned in the introduction that I was working on uh, two documentaries based on material that I filmed in Australia and New Zealand. And back then I was using the top-notch camera. It was a Sony uh, camera, professional or semi-professional camera that filmed in HD, which at the time was a big deal. Because the, the <laughs> when I bought that camera, the, 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 the TV industry had just switched to HD. And I still worked with a lot of camera men that told me, hey, I'm not going to buy a new camera. You know, SD has been good. So regular old-fashioned television format has been good for, for decades. So I'm not going to invest 40,000 euros into a new camera just to do HD. And, and so there was still this old mindset. It's good enough. You know, nobody complains. But of course, at that time, we didn't know how quickly these huge TVs be would become aff affordable. Just like I bought a TV what is it, half a year ago? And I paid the same. I, so I had a small TV. I paid less than I paid for that small TV. And now it's just almost like it looks like a, like a cinema screen. It's so big. And it's because this, this LCD, LED uh, uh, technology is getting cheaper very, very rapidly. So we're, we're soon approaching the time that our television wall will probably be, be bigger than what we see Marty McFly use in, uh, in, in Back to the Future episode two. Um, because, well, it's so cheap. But of course, the bigger the screen, the more quality your image needs to have. And so there was a time that HD was considered to be the neck ultra of, of quality and, you know, who would ever need better than HD? And now we're using these 4K televisions and with the uh, advent of VR technology where we will be able to, you know, watch movies in a virtual environment, super high resolution. It's, it's going to get even more important to film in the highest quality possible. That's, I think, why Disney is reinvesting in old-fashioned technology. If it film everything on film so that later on they can always upgrade. One of the, the, the tragedies of the prequels was that George Lucas, I think, was ahead of the curve, always tried to innovate and and thanks to that of course let's not forget that he pushed the industry also to move ahead but what he did in or what he i think the mistake he made by choosing for digital cameras for uh for the prequels was that back then um they could only film in 2k and that was seen as such an improvement over hd but nowadays now that we have 4k televisions uh, and we've got 4K projection in our movie theaters, that 2K is not enough. And of course, they can upscale, but all the special effects were made for 2K. And if you upscale those special effects, and you don't have access to the original renderings anymore, then it becomes a blurry mess. And you can totally tell. So I'm, I'm now watching a lot of the movies, and I, I was so stunned to discover that Disney Plus not only has 4K versions of the more recent movies, but this is the first time that I've seen A New Hope in 4K. And it blew me away how good it looks. It is far beyond... And I, I'm not sure if this has ever been released in 4K before Disney Plus. Not that I can remember. But they have this 4K version of A New Hope of Empire Strikes Back. It looks glorious. But then you go back and you watch the prequels on Disney Plus... And it is, oh, it's terrible. It's it's uh, really, um, and and not just that, not just the prequels, but all the ec extra di the extra effects that they put into a New Hope, like when the land speeder enters Mos Eisley, you know, and you know how how George Lucas wanted to look, to have Mos Eisley look like this sprawling, busy city, and so he added Jawas and these walking dinosaurs and. 
you're watching that now in 4K, and it just hurts your eyes. It's so, like, even this, the cheapest video game looks better. And it's actually, I don't think that they should leave it like this. I truly believe that they should go back and redo those special, all of the special effects. Just, you know, hire George Lucas to help you with that. But it is, this, I don't want Star Wars to be preserved like this. And if George Lucas says, this is the final version, then I'd rather just have him take out all the special effects that they, they added and go back to the original. Just give us back the restored, the way it was. But because then at least it would it would be consistent. But now you've got this really high uh, quality uh, scan of the original film material. And then you've got this ultra low resolution, horrible looking special effect mess that they added for the special editions. And it doesn't hold up. And it totally takes you out of the movie. So that would be my prayer. Like, let's redo this one more time and do it properly. Make it photorealistic. And uh, there is so much that could be improved. And hey, George Lucas has already shown that he still has made some tweaks to A New Hope. They added Greedo right before he shoots uh, uh, Han Solo. Or I should say, right before Han Solo shoots Greedo. Because Han shoot, shot first. There is another line that is added. So Greedo, Greedo says something in, I think, in Hatties. And it, it's the same phrase that is uttered, I think, in uh, The Return of the Jedi. It means something like, this is how you will end, or something like that. Uh, but people were like, oh my gosh, he's still tinkering with A New Hope. When is this going to end? <laughs> but uh, I think that was a hopeful sign. It's like, George Lucas is not afraid to, to add stuff, to fix stuff. And it's not always a success. But any change in the original trilogy to take these editions of the special editions, these these new these special effects that at the time may have looked okay, but are now f- so horribly outdated, to any attempt to update those, I think would be welcome for for me as a Star Wars fan, and hopefully also for for the rest of the Star Wars loving uh, film. So, um, what I was uh, I was uh, going to say before I got distracted by Star Wars was. I now look at the f- stuff that I filmed in New Zealand and Australia, and I'm looking, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, that it doesn't look good. Uh, I it's not stabilized very well. There are there is you know chromatic aberrations because of the cheap lens that I was using. Um, there is no you know shallow depth of field in any of these shots, and I went to to the Shire. I went to the the, the film set at Matamata, and it's. Uh, I mean, it looks great because, well, what I the the environment was great, but I'm like, I have these like five second shots of everything. Like, why didn't just I? Why didn't I leave the camera running? This is not enough. I, this this shot should have been like four times as long, and it's all because I think I just, I didn't know what I was doing. I was I didn't I hadn't produced a single TV episode when I, when I went to Australia and New Zealand. So now what I'm going to try to do is take all the experience that I have in editing, mostly, and in in narrating a story through voiceover, and also tweaking and color correcting the stuff, because even the colors look terrible. Like, back then, I loved the, what came out of that small camera, and now I'm looking at it, it's like, oh, the colors are so muted, and the white balance is off, And but it, a lot of that is fixable. Um, that's the advantage of working digitally, you can actually do a lot in terms of stabilizing or slowing down the footage, creating... I did a lot of with the um, uh, Irish footage. I did a lot of, of, of slow motion where you can just tell Premiere Pro, hey, just create some extra frames and make this look smooth. So you slow down something. I had a lot of these also shots where in it, because of the voiceover, it needed to be a little bit longer, but well... The shot was just too short, and I just you just tell it, well, okay, play this at 50%, but make it smooth. And so what the computer then does is it looks at the two frames and creates an intermediate frame based on those two frames, and, and all of a sudden, you, your slow motion becomes buttery smooth. That is one scene where we're, there's a beautiful vista, and I wanted to use that towards the end of the episode. I usually have like a conclusion. It's a little bit more spiritual. And I wanted to just show the beauty of nature. And there was this one shot during my last walk in Ireland where you see this beautiful green valley, 
mountains in the distance. And there was this one little sheep that just walks from right to left. And it's this, this, this one bright little moving spot, very cute. But the, the sheep is like, well, I don't care you're filming. I'm in a hurry. I want to eat my grass. And so he just walks by way too fast. And if I could direct a sheep, I would tell him, just slow down. Let's do that again. Just uh, need a little bit more. And now I'm just, okay, let's just play this at 50%, but make the sheep move smoothly. And that, so now I have this very relaxed, bouncy, you know, almost as if it's a sheep on, 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 uh, on the moon. <laughs> he just like hops around in very graciously. There's no living sheep that could walk like that. But it, it still looks okay, thanks to technology. So hopefully when I start working on my footage from Australia and New Zealand, I'll be able to, uh, to improve a lot of the original material. But, 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 if I had known how important this footage would be and what kind of footage I would need now six years later... I would have taken another camera. I would have taken different shots. I would have read up on on depth of field and wide balance and all that stuff that I had no idea. I just pressed record and started shooting. Yeah, that's that's how important it is to never really switch to new technology too quickly. Same with photos. Uh, every photo that I have from the time that I studied in Rome was made on one of those floppy disks digital cameras, the Mavicas, and it, oh, it's so bad. And it was m one of the most important moments of my life. And had I taken regular photos, they would have looked amazing. I've got photos from my childhood where, as a ba where I was a baby. My mom was a great photographer. And you can, st I mean, that looks like art, those photos. She had like this amazing uh, camera with beautiful lenses, and it still holds up. Whereas the digital stuff that I that I took photos with for, for many years, I mean, it's unwatchable. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. The things you learn over time. Let's go and visit the peculiar bunch. At least in faith, some things always stay the same. <laughs> Catholics rock! Here at the Peculiar Bunch, we're always happy to tell you everything you always wanted to know about Catholics, but you were afraid to ask. Catholics can be a peculiar bunch. No meat on Friday. No meat? What do they eat? Light bulbs? Well, today I want to briefly talk about the winter festivities, and especially those that have a religious background, and why that is linked to the poor. Man, you guys got more crazy rules than Blockbuster Video. So this past Sunday was the Sunday for the World Sunday for the Poor, World Day for the Poor. Um, and that is uh, celebrated in the Catholic Church and also, of course, invites us to do something for the poor. And uh, our current Pope, Pope Francis, wanted to really show um, that it's not enough to just... Th thoughts and prayers when it comes to the poor is not enough. They, need, they don't need thoughts and prayers, they need food and clothing <laughs> and shelter and heat and soup. And so um, very close to the Vatican, uh, near the famous uh, colonnades, there was a building that was uh, for a long time in use by a religious congregation of sisters. However, about a year ago, the sisters left and this building was still standing there. And I think it's property of the Vatican. It's probably extraterritorial uh, um, uh, ground for the Vatican and, and Pope Francis uh, ordered his um, he has a bishop that works for him among the poor and that's his only mission and he ordered him to come up with a plan for that building but to make it a home for the poor now a year later that work has been finished and uh, on Saturday before um, before the World Day of the Poor, Pope Francis visited this home of the poor. And it is uh, it was a sight to behold, because the Pope was just eating with them. The, the, the poor, the homeless people, uh, the sick, they can get shelter there. They can get food in the winter when temperatures drop in Rome and can get very cold in Rome. You may not think that Rome is cold in the winter, but it is. Uh, it's because it's northern Europe, right? We're, we're much more northern than most of the United States. So winters can be very harsh. Um, so they can even increase the capacity during the wintertime so that 
the homeless people in the center of the town don't have to sleep in the streets. But they can also get, and that is new, uh, medical treatment. There are psychologists available if, if they need to talk. And uh, um, quite a few uh, of the homeless are struggling with psychological issues. Um, and and some of, sometimes their psychiatric problems have led to them becoming homeless and basically helpless. And so they, they can get free medication and everything. Um, I thought it was amazing to hear how much... Um, the Vatican is currently investing in taking care of the poor. And the most uh, impressive aspect of that story was that um, uh, this bishop that works for Pope Francis invited the contractors who were working on a renovation of, of that house to hire the homeless. He said, if you need help with painting the walls or whatever, uh, refurbishing this house, the first ones you should hire are the homeless people. And then some of those turned out to be such good uh, workers that they were hired uh, for, for real, <laughs> for also for future projects. And so it was the, 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 the project itself became also a place where, where some of those homeless people could start a, literally a new future and could be, you know, step, step away for good of the streets of Rome. I think a beautiful example of how an initiative like that can truly make the world a better place. Now, the, also very uh, um, beautiful, I think, that this took place this past Sunday, that that is the Day of the Poor, because this time of the year, November, December, traditionally have always been times where the rich would take extra care for the poor. And I think I've explained this before when I talked about Halloween, but a lot of those winter festivities that we now know and that we associate with consumerism, right? Like, and that there are sometimes Catholics, I see them kind of uh, protesting against that. Oh, Halloween, it's all about candy. We should uh, uh, completely get rid of Halloween and only celebrate All Saints Day, etc. Um, same thing with Christmas. Um, a lot of pushback, you know, all, these, all this food and all the spending on presents that we don't use. Um, what we often forget is that the gift-giving originally was not gift-giving of the rich to the rich, but it was gift-giving of the rich to the poor. That is why in many of these traditions you've got children going door-to-door. -door. That's basically the, 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 um, the, the evolution of a tradition in which during these harsher months of the year the poor would go, and this is beginning of winter, they would go from door-to-door -door and receive food receive clothes, receive some money, so that for the, the hardest months of the, of the winter, January, February, they would have uh, what they need to survive those, those months. And let me give you a few examples. That was the case for Halloween. That's why on Hallow's Eve, uh, the poor would go from door to door. Um, in the Netherlands, in some areas, you have the Feast of St. Martin, this French saint who shared, or actually it was a Roman saint, uh, but very popular saint in France, who shared half of his mantle with uh, a beggar at the gates of the city. Uh, and then later on that night he gets a dream where he sees Jesus appearing to him, and Jesus is wearing that half of his mantle as a, as a sign to show what you did for the least of, 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 of mine, you did for me. Uh, that is basically also the religious motivation to be good for the poor. Because it's in the poor that you encounter Jesus. Um, and it, that this, these are the words of Jesus himself. Whatever you did for the, for the smallest, the, most, the weakest, the, the sick, that's what you did for me. And that will also be on which you will be judged later on. It's not going to be just about your membership of your local parish or how much money you, you gave to the church or uh, you know, how many rosaries you prayed. Jesus himself says it's all going to be about what did you do for your neighbor what did you do for the poor and so that's something that if we're smart we're going to invest in um so saint martin's feast you have here in the netherlands just started last week uh, these 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 weeks around the the feast day of saint nicholas a very important saint in the netherlands of course also because he was a patron saint for the for the people at sea and of course well we're a seafaring nation and so the, the main church in the, the co-cathedral of Amsterdam is dedicated to St. Nicholas. But here we have this tradition where a couple of weeks before uh, his feast day on, on December the 6th, the, uh, the St. Nicholas is welcomed 
and and uh, in in the country, and and the children will put their shoes near the chimney so that Saint Nicholas can fill them with presents or with candy, and that too originally was from a tradition in the Catholic Church where the poor children could bring their their shoe to the, the church, and then the parishioners would fill those shoes with food with you know a bit of money or or candy because poor children couldn't afford candy so um beautiful tradition and of course it's now all turned into consumerism but you also see now trends where in parishes at least um they're incentivizing the kids to turn that feast around and instead of always having it about their wish list give some of your presents to children that don't have whose parents don't have money to buy presents and don't just give away your leftover toys give away the ones that you like because if you like to play with those toys then those kids will probably also like to play with that and i i, I would highly encourage parishes to do that to turn it and you could also do that for halloween why not why not do it like a collection of you know of of candy for 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 kids in in poor families or, or or just do a bigger collection of of uh, winter coats or whatever and go distribute that on on all hallows eve to um to the people in the streets there are so many things that we can do to to reframe these holidays and to change it from a feast of consumerism into a feast of giving because that is what approaches us to christmas which ultimately the ultimate uh gift of christmas is god giving himself in jesus and so we're we should i think if we want to bring christ back into christmas <laughs> then it's not just about pious activities around christmas it's about recognizing christ there on your doorstep in the, the in the in the poor in the people that uh, are in the margins of society and and follow god's example by giving something of yourself of what you have to the poor that is, I think, how we can totally reboot these important uh, winter feasts and bring them back into the original tradition. Um, and there's a lot of discussion going on in our societies about you know, our cultural heritage, and then there's also a lot of warfare, you know, the culture wars, it's always we have to hold it. But a lot of these culture wars are about the superficial stuff. It's about holding on to our traditions, etc. But we should... If we want to hold on to what is valuable, we should go back to what do these feasts mean and how were, were faithful people f on the, from the inspiration of their faith using these festivities, using these traditions to help others. That is the core of what we're supposed to be as followers of Jesus. And I think if we would, if we would step into the culture wars, we wouldn't call them culture wars anymore. We would just say, this is our culture. This is what, who we are. This is what we do for our culture. And that is what brings people together. Not the war, warfare about, you know, liturgy and stuff. Anyway, that's just my take on stuff. Believe it or not, that's when up to you. you become an expert <laughs> in thermonuclear astrophysics? Last night. The packet. The extraction theory papers. Am I the only one who did the reading? Uh, I want to briefly touch upon something that I expanded upon in my latest episode uh, of my of, of my new show on YouTube called Father Roderick Talks Star Wars. And I, I can't tell you how excited I am that I finally have a YouTube show about Star Wars where I can just freely, openly talk about Star Wars and go in-depth and doing reviews of, of The Mandalorian in this case. And then once The Mandalorian is over, we'll go back to talking about Episode 9 and uh, there's so many things that I could talk about. But in the my analysis of episode two, and I, no spoilers here, uh, of the or the chapter two—that's how Disney calls it—chapter two of the Mandalorian. I went in depth to examine how that episode reflected the hero's journey from the writings of Joseph Campbell. And if you've never read a book by Joseph Campbell, one book that should be on your reading list is called *The Hero of with a Thousand Faces*. And it is basically, uh, it's, it's the first time that he explains what he calls the hero's journey, which is a, a monomyth. In a sense that it is, mono means one, it is the same story that you will find in all the various myths and religious stories, fairy tales, but also modern movies like Star Wars. George Lucas was hugely influenced by the writings of Joseph Campbell, and the hero's journey is literally the 
the foundation, the narrative foundation of Star Wars, and especially of the the first episodes that he made. And what if we, sometimes we feel like something is Star Wars, and we can't really put a finger on it. It's not just the lightsabers. It's not just the cinematography or or the way the ships look or whatever. But what we truly feel is make Star Wars Star Wars is this hero's journey, this this mono myth of the hero and. To briefly summarize it, it basically the hero. A story, a good story, always starts with the hero leaving his familiar world, stopping to do what he used to do, stepping away, and it's the beginning of an adventure. He's called. It's the 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 call to adventure, um, uh, which he embarks upon, and that is where he becomes a hero, basically, and and so it challenges him to step away from the status quo, usually because there's a crisis or a huge challenge. And then the next phase is all these tests and trials that he has to go through. And Star Wars is full of these trials. You think of, you know, Darth Maul trying to prevent Anakin from leaving the planet, and there's so many of these things. Um, and the hero will learn by overcoming these trials, by because it's the trials that make him discover his true strength. And then in these trials, you always have a supernatural element in, in, in mythology and fairy tales. There's always a, a fairy, a wizard, um, some magical power. Think of all the, the mythology that Marvel currently is, is, is um, sharing with us in the superhero movies. These superheroes are so fascinating to us because they embody the, the, the hero's journey. It's always about regular people that even, even Superman, in a certain way, was just a regular guy until he came to our planet and then the powers of the sun because it's a different planet, gave him superpowers. And, and that, that, there's always this supernatural, extraordinary element. Um, maybe Batman is one of the few that is an exception. He's just a very smart and very rich guy. But e you could even say that all his gadgets are a certain form of, you know, that's kind of not really normal. That's not natural to be able to do what he does. So, um, But it's thanks to the discovery that his strength is not his own, but is is transcends him in a certain way or her that he will learn that his future um, will be bright because of something that transcends him and so and then the final phase of the hero's journey is always the return to the world that he came from with all the lessons learned and applying it in regular life think of um, the story of, of of Bilbo Baggins he literally is challenged to step out of his very comfortable, cozy world in the Shire, has to go on an adventure, goes from trial to trial, every time it gets harder for him to survive. And then finally, when the dragon is beaten, there's always a fight with a dragon, symbolizing our fears and everything. And once the dragon is beaten, then he returns to the Shire, only to discover how hard it is to apply his lessons learned to the world that basically stayed the same. And only slowly after, and then he becomes a storyteller afterwards. So there are so many of these themes that you find in, in good stories and that all good stories have in common hands the name monomyth. So if you want to uh, learn a little bit more about that, I can highly recommend you read Joseph Campbell's book. Uh, Campbell died in the 80s of the last century. He wrote this book in the 1949s. There's even a television series that, series that was based on the hero's journey and everything. There's a lot of material out there. Also a lot of you know, collected writings. But if you want to start reading Joseph Campbell, I would say start with the hero with a thousand faces because that's that's probably what you're going to what you're going to learn there is going to help you discover so much in uh, in the movies and in the TV series that you love, and you will you will start to understand why why they work so well. That's it for the books. What else have we got left? We science. are on the cutting edge of technology. And technology. And science wow. fiction. Well, what does that mean? Let's plug it in. It's going to say, hey, I see you plugged in a new device. And it's going to load in the appropriate drivers. You'll notice that this scanner built... Whoa. Well, all your technology stuff it just ends in disaster. But there is one more thing. The final part of my show is always dedicated to everything that has to do with plugging in wires and connecting equipment and technology. Uh, and there are a few things that I wanted to mention here briefly. And first of all, it's in the world of games. There are uh, two exciting news items um, that caught my interest. One of which is the launch, finally, of Google's Stadia. You may have heard me talking about that a long time ago. 
Google Stadia was uh, Google's. It is Google's attempt to um, to do cloud-based gaming, which means you no longer have to have a very powerful console like an Xbox or a PlayStation Four or a very high-spec PC to play the latest games. No. Google will run that software on their end, in the cloud. They will use all their computing power to give you very, very high-quality graphics. And the only thing you have to do is to get with the program, buy one of their controllers, and then with almost no latency, at least that's the, that's the promise, you will be able to play these games, and you can play the same game on your cheap phone or on a big screen TV, a smart TV, or on a computer. It doesn't matter. The only thing that you need to have is a good internet connection. That's also the problem because there were some... Uh, so the, the service launched uh, yesterday, and of course, people start to try it out, and what do you know? Lag. Of course, n- no one has a... Well... Not everyone has a stable internet connection. And if you do all the processing elsewhere and then you have to stream the results to local computers via a Wi-Fi or, uh, I don't know, 3G or 4G network, then it all the bottleneck is not the processing of the images or the software. The bottleneck is going to be the connection. And that's where Google Stadia already shows some cracks. Because um, you, I was watching uh, a playthrough of um, Destiny 2. It's a first-person shooter where everything depends on reaction uh, time. And it had all these hiccups where the, you, you know, the frame rate would go down to three or four frames per second. And that is killing. Literally, it kills you because someone else is faster, has a faster internet connection and... Boom, you're dead. So this may be very good for more adventure games where it's or slow slower games, maybe even RPGs, but for these fast moving first person shooters, which still is, you know, the bulk of what a lot of gamers want to play, it it's not there yet. So I'm not sure if Google is gonna win. Plus, the Microsoft is also uh, doing this and apparently does it much better than Google. Well, and I'm not surprised because Microsoft has in been, has been in this game for much longer and can focus on this this much more than Google can because Google always has a gazillion different projects that they're working on. And how often have we seen stuff that they launched only to see it a, a year or two later being canceled? It's the big frustration if you if you work with Google. I mean, what they make is amazing, but they're not very faithful to their own products because I don't think that they have a good vision of what they want to be. There's no focus in Google. They're just super rich and super powerful, but there's no focus. That's, I think, their Achilles heel. And you see that also now that they're trying to uh, get a piece of the pie of the gaming world. Then there is another company that wants to hold on to their piece of the pie in the gaming world, and that is Valve. Valve uh, originally was a software company that made video games, and they became very powerful and very rich thanks to their Steam platform where you could buy games and reinstall them on basically any computer. Once you bought a game, it was in your catalog, and then even if you upgraded your computer, you could still reinstall that game. Steam has made billions selling video games, and for a long time, it was the only platform out there for gamers. Nowadays, you have a lot of competitors. Uh, It's similar to the streaming world, you know, on-demand TV. First of all, there was just only Netflix, and now look at how how many subscriptions you're supposed to have. You know, Hulu, Netflix, uh, Amazon Prime, Disney Plus. Uh, Gosh, the list goes on and on. CBS, uh, and and so. At one point, you can only spend money once. You will have to choose. And the same is happening right now also in the world of of gaming platforms. Uh, More and more of these platforms are now getting exclusive games. And at one point, people will jump ship. And so for for Valve, it's very important that their Steam platform uh, stays relevant and has some exclusive content as well. One of their biggest successes in in the world of games was a a game called Half-Life. They made two games, or actually the second game was a whole bunch of games, but they all were called Half-Life 2. They also made Portal, by the way, which is kind of uh, 
also success, but more of a puzzle game. But Half-Life was truly uh, like an adventure game and had a very riveting story. That's why it was a science fiction story. I've played Half-Life 1, but not too often because the original was not didn't look too good. Half-Life 2, played it a lot, and it ends with a cliffhanger. And then they never made Half-Life 3. And so this has been go- this has been this ongoing almost a myth now for for gamers. Like will we ever see how this story ends? Because we've been waiting for since 2007 for a sequel to Half-Life 2. And so every once in a while you would get these rumors like, oh, they're working on Half-Life 3, it's coming, there's going to be an announcement and then it would be totally something different. And every, so every time you have this, we, people get their hopes up and it's, ah, nah. And so when Valve entered the virtual reality market with their, uh, their virtual VR goggles, also integrating it into Steam, so Steam VR is still right now the, the biggest platform for, for VR, and I think that Facebook is trying as much as they can to make Oculus, I got a rival product. Um, once Valve stepped into the world of VR, there have been rumors, well, maybe they will just, what they need is a killer app. They want everyone to buy their stuff and not Oculus, so they need a killer game, and why not Half-Life? Well, turns out that is exactly what they were planning and so it has just been announced that there will be a half-life life sequel the first sequel in more than 10 years called half-life alix and the name alix comes from the female protagonist of half-life 2 we never knew how her story ended she was also an uh an uh, how do you call that an npc so a non-playing character but apparently in this new VR game, which apparently, according to Valve itself, is going to be the best in the genre. It's going to be one of the, the tentpole virtual reality games that has ever been developed, at least for the time being, because, of course, technology evolves very quickly. But we will get to play her. And that also indicates that this is going to be, story-wise, a sequel to Half-Life 2. So this is very, very big for gamers. I just hope that they can deliver and that it won't disappoint us because, well, expectations in 12 years' time can grow to <laughs> to heights that you can never match. Think of Star Wars, you know. Star Wars is never going to be good enough for some Star Wars fans, except if you're me. Any Star Wars is good. Um, so, uh, and then at the end of this te- segment, I would briefly mention my plans for 2020 when it comes to filming equipment. One of the things that I noticed when I looked at my stuff uh, from New Zealand is Oh, if only I would have had a drone. This this is a landscape that just needs drones. Now, I don't know about the regulations in New Zealand for, for drone flying, but there are just shots and, and circumstances where you need a drone. I don't have a drone yet. I heard that DJI just came out with an even smaller drone than the last one that they issued, and this one weighs almost nothing. You can literally put it in a backpack and not even feel it. That's the kind of equipment that I like. And the same thing is important for another piece of equipment that I want to get for my M50, my Canon M50, and that is a gimbal. I have a gimbal for my phone. I have a small gimbal like the Mini DJI, which is fine for small, like I did a behind-the-scenes episode on my vlog uh, a couple of months ago that was filmed with this, you know, all-in-one drone or gimbal. It has both the stabilizer and the camera. The camera itself doesn't work too well indoors. It needs a lot of light, and that makes it, not very useful for me. But uh, there are a few gimbals that I'm looking into. Uh, DJI is a gimbal. There's also Jiun, uh, like a Chinese brand that has a pretty good gimbal. Not all of them work well with my camera. That's the problem. And a lot of the more professional vloggers and YouTubers, they all they, they, they don't use Canons. They use uh, Sony, the Sony A7 III. That's basically the best one. My cameraman uses that. And so, uh, and then that works re- really well with the gimbals. But unfortunately, like the Chinese gimbal doesn't work with my uh, Canon M50. So I'm still looking into it. But what is super important for me is that it is light and portable because I'm always on the move and I love filming while I'm traveling, but I don't want to travel carrying like so much equipment on my back. And then the final thing that I'm uh, uh, hoping to be able to purchase next year is better microphones. I currently use. Uh, handover microphones that I got from the broadcasting company. They're really old and the audio quality is really subpar. Uh, They always have to do a lot of audio fixing later on to make it better. 
So I want better microphones. But also the problem is for every microphone, you need a, trans a receiver and a transmitter. So if I have two people or, or I want to mic myself plus the person that I'm interviewing, I can't, well, I can't because the, I need two receivers. And my current camera setup is so lightweight and so small that I can't put two receivers on there. And I don't want to walk around with another audio recorder. So there is a system uh, that's out there that where you can have two transmitters and one receiver. It's expensive. That's a problem. But I think it will really help me to... Uh, to be faster, to fill more in less time, to be more efficient, and that's what it's all about. Time is money in the world of TV production. But also, time means the more I can do, thanks to modern equipment, uh, the more I can share. So that's what I'm hoping to do. That's why some of you are supporting me on patreon.com slash fatherroderick. It's so that you can help me to get this stuff. Anyway, thanks for listening, and I will see you next week. I'm now going to record the extra podcast for my patrons. See you next week.